So, Lord, give us both the proper sobriety and the proper joy as we consider the the things that you have to say to us today in your words in this parable, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would now speak, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of us in the way that you have planned, that we would hear, read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest, as our colleagues said, your word today that we would live the lives that we are called to, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm always, I'm always, when I walk out here, I feel like the boat is tipping th- this way a little bit, and I was wondering why that is, and I think, I think people are drawn to the music. Like, the, I don't know, maybe you can hear the music or something better. They're certainly not drawn to the pulpit side, that is uh, for sure. So we're, we're going to continue in this little sort of series, I guess, if you will, on the parables of Jesus or sort of the parables of the last days, uh, how to live for the kingdom, how to live a prepared life. I don't know about you, but if it's not the last days, I don't know, 2020 is a pretty good candidate for uh, the last days. There was a little like meme on the Internet that I saw. It was like someone going outside like this with their sunglasses and squinting. And it said, this is me going outside to find out which chapter of Revelation we're going to live today in uh, 2020. But whether or not we're in the very last days or not, we are called to live a particular kind of way of life as people of the kingdom. And so Jesus really digs into this in this series of parables towards the end of Matthew's gospel. Last week we talked about the oil that we need, the oil of the Holy Spirit to keep our lamps burning uh, like the uh, wise virgins who awaited the bridegroom as we await Christ, our bridegroom, and as he, he will uh, his return. Because he will return. Amen. And that's good news for his people. He will come back for his bride. And when I look at the way of the world right now, I say, come, Lord Jesus, come. But he says that wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and plague and famine and all of these things have to be happened first. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. And then will the Son of Man return. So the question is, how do we live as we await in this parable today, the parable uh, that is historically called the parable of the talents has much to say uh, to us. So if you want to follow along in Matthew chapter 25, we're going to jump right into the parable uh, for the first few minutes. And then I want to spend some time kind of uh, digging into the truths that we discover in the parable uh, when we're finished with it. So um, most translations use uh, the word talents when it says that this master goes away and he entrusts his servants with talents. The New International Version that we're using is apparently the translation for leprechauns because it says he gave them bags of gold. So um, it's kind of a silly sounding thing. But the reason I bring that up, other than to make a joke about leprechauns, is to say that a talent is a very large sum of money. This is why the, the translators use bag of gold. A talent was about, in Jesus' day, about 20 years worth of labor's wages. So it's a great amount of money. Okay? And so this master is going on a journey, and he calls his servants, and it tells us he entrusted his wealth. Everybody say, entrusted. You've been entrusted with something. In fact, you've been entrusted with many things. All of us have. Everything we have has been entrusted to us by God, our maker and our redeemer. So that 40,000 in your 401k retirement savings is not yours, it's God's. The car that you drove here this morning 
is not yours, it's God. Your son, your daughter, your mother, father, the people in your life primarily belong to God. And everything in our lives, possessions, people, relationships, are things given to us by God to be stewarded, to be cared for, to be used rightly according to his good purposes. It tells us, Jesus says that he gave... uh, to each according to his ability, in verse 15. He gave to each according to his ability. You see, God's expectations of us and how we're to live and how we're to steward what he's given us are, is completely fair. Okay? God is not unfair in any way. He's completely just. He's completely fair. So God gives us, he entrusts us with a certain amount of money, time, skill, spiritual gifts, relationships, all of those things according to our ability. The Bible says God doesn't give us anything with which he will not enable us to carry it out. So each according to his ability, and each of us has just the right amount of resources, time, and gifts to be able to live out the vocation that God has given to us. This is the point that Jesus is making in the parable. It's interesting. Someone pointed out the other day in a book I was reading, they said, we modern people, we have like everyday luxuries that kings of old would have expended armies to acquire. We have so much, friends, that we don't even realize how much it is we have. And to those who much have been given, much will be required. Amen. So there's work to do for the kingdom. So then Jesus says, after a long time, In verse 19, you get different amounts of money. One guy gets five bags of gold, one guy gets two bags of gold, and one guy gets one bag of gold, each according to the ability that the master knew they had to make money with it, to make a profit, to spend it wisely, to invest it. And then in verse 19, we read, after a long time. And so this is the same theme as last week it said that the bridegroom was a long time in coming. You remember that? We talked about the procession through the streets and they would make it as slow as possible, the wedding procession. So this is what the theologians call the Greek word, the parousia, the uh, waiting for the day of the Lord, for his glorious return, his appearing. But there's a long delay. Jesus knew, I think, when he told this parable to his disciples, knew that his church would read it for many years to come and wanted to encourage them Don't think the Lord has forgotten or has changed his plans or he's never going to return. There's a delay and it's for a reason. The Bible tells us that God is being patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to a knowledge of the truth, to put their trust in Jesus Christ. So God has not returned yet. The reason that Jesus has not returned yet is because he's being patient and the gospel has to be preached to all nations. How many of you know what the 1040 window is? The 1040 window on a global map is those nations that are yet unreached by the gospel. And there's quite a bit. There's work to be done. And some of you may be called to go into those nations in your lifetime, into the the bush, perhaps, and preach the gospel. It could be your calling. So there's a long delay. And then it says, The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. I'm in verse 19 still. He returned and settled accounts with them with them. See, this is that reality that Jesus keeps bringing to the forefront in all of these parables. He will return to settle his accounts. He will return and each of us will stand before him as he settles 
accounts with us. What does that mean? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, in the, in the physical earthly body, whether good or bad. Okay. So each and every one of us will stand before Jesus. What a way to start your day. Wake up in the morning. How should I live my day thinking about that I'm going to give an account for it at the judgment seat of Christ one day? Whoo! Might light a little bit of a fire under our heinies, wouldn't it? Ah, uh, but it's meant to, it is meant to keep us awake, keep us alert, right? Lest any of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? And turn away from the living God. Jesus loves us enough to tell, to, to share stories with us that shake us quite a bit to the core and remind us that we'll give an account for our lives, the many amazing things that God gives to us. So notice this detail. Servant number one and servant number two are given completely different amounts of money. And yet, they receive the same reward, the same congratulatory praise from the master. Come and share in your master's happiness. Welcome, enter into the joy of your master. I put you in charge of a few things, and now you've been faithful with those. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. The Bible tells us that for faithful believers in Christ, that we will reign over the nations in the kingdom of Jesus when he comes to establish his kingdom and renew all things, right? So that idea of believing in Jesus, so you go to heaven when you die, so you can rock in a cloud hammock and play a harp and drink Sauvignon Blanc, it's not really the picture of heaven in the Bible. It's that Jesus is going to return one day. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to purge from his creation everything that is at odds with him, all wickedness, corruption, and unbelief, and he's going to establish a beautiful kingdom. He's going to make all things new. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. There'll be no sickness, pain, or death. And his heart's desire is that everybody would be a part of that. God invites everybody to the party. You know that? Everybody's invited. That's why Jesus came. So the idea is actually that one day we will be rewarded and we will be given different positions in the new heaven and the new earth. We don't think about that. There's a reward system. There is. Okay? There's, a, there's the judgment seat. There's judgment, and when you put your trust in Christ, judgment has already been proclaimed over you, not guilty. Amen? You can do better than that. Amen? Amen. Not guilty because of what Christ did. But there's also the judgment seat of rewards for what our roles will look like in God's kingdom, in his new creation. And there's a little bit of both going on in this passage. So, it is not about... Because the, 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 the servants are given different amounts of money, they get the same reward. So it, this is not a parable about doing more, 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 more. It's about being faithful with what you have. It, it could be the fact, that, and I hope that it is the fact, that, that, that a, a person who lived a homeless life all of their lives, and all they had was a cardboard box, but they went out of their way to share it and shelter other people with it, which is seemingly a very small thing, will probably be like a king in heaven where I'll probably be like their servant because I had a whole lot more than that and probably didn't use it as wisely as they did, right? So this is not about doing more and more and more, right? Like last week we said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. (laughs) 
which we all did after church when we helped move the shelves out of the nursery. But I just thought that was funny. But this is about being faithful with the gifts that we give. And you see, your gifts and your calling are unique, beloved. God's given you. There's a certain amount of money in your bank that God knew would be in there before time began. He has spiritual gifts in you, which you may or may not yet be walking in actively and pursuing. He's given you family, friends. He's ordained that you would live at this time and in this place at the address that you live so that you could be a faithful steward of all that he's given you. It's an eternal perspective, isn't it? So um, God's expectations of us are fair, but we are called to be faithful with our portion. So do I have money? Then I must give generously. Do I have a prophetic gift? Then I must actively seek God's voice on behalf of other people. Do I have a significant free time on my hands? Then I must use that free time to serve other people, to be present to them, to give to them, to love them. Right? These are all different kinds of gifts that the Lord gives us to use, to steward. Now, let's look at the third servant. It doesn't go so well for him, does it? So he, uh, bring, he comes to the master, and you know what I noticed that I never noticed before in this parable, is the other two... Um, said to him, they said to him, uh, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. They, the first two both said, Master, you entrusted me. This guy, he doesn't even acknowledge that he's been entrusted with anything. Instead, he rightly, he immediately goes into an accusatory position. I knew that you're a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Okay, the attitude that God's going to do whatever God's going to want to do, whatever, God, your will be done, but I'm just going to kind of live my life and he's going to do whatever he wants to do. That's not how it works. God calls us into cooperation with him and his purposes. We can't be passive bystanders because we're called to steward what we've been given. And it doesn't go so well for this servant, you see, because why? He misperceives who God is. Are any of those things true of God? You're a hard man? You, you, you gather where you do not scatter? No, he's accusing God. Where does this voice come from? Why, 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 why does anyone listen to this voice that causes us to accuse God? God doesn't care about you. He hasn't healed you. He hasn't provided for that financial breakthrough that you need yet. Right? That's that, that, that voice that comes to us and tries to turn our hearts into an accusing position against God. Whose voice is that? Jesus calls him, that's right, Jesus calls him the father of lies for a reason, right? I love that you answer. We, you can answer. This is, this, we, we do that here. So, when Eve was face-to-face with the serpent, what did the enemy say to her? He said to her, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No. God said you can eat from every tree in the garden except this one. So Satan twists things to make God look bad. Spiritual warfare is a battle primarily fought in our minds. And the enemy wants us to have a picture of God that he's heavy-handed, that he's mean and nasty, he does whatever he wants apart from you, and so you might as well just kind of sit on the gifts that he's given you and let him do his thing. And it led to this man being wicked and lazy, according to Jesus. It's not who God is. Who is God? Jesus says, 
come to me, all who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God doesn't put a a weight on us and then just leave us to our own to deal with it. Mark Twain, uh, the secular writer uh, from of old, you know uh, the, the stories. Mark Twain, famous for short stories and for the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and all that. He was uh, very agnostic. And he said he used to have this recurring dream where he was uh, laying on his back and there was this giant oversized Bible like the size of a house, like crushing him. That's how many people re- perceive Christianity, even some Christians. God has given you an overbearing, overburdensome weight to carry on your own and it's probably just going to crush you. Those are the kind of things that the enemy wants us to think about God. But Jesus says, come yoke yourself to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he walks with us. He walks with us. He enables us to carry out faithfully the things that he's given us to do. He says, I will, it's an oft-repeated phrase in all through scripture. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Over and over again, I will never leave you or forsake you. So this man falls into a wicked and lazy life because he misperceives who God is and accuses God. It's so important, that famous saying by A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do we understand God to be a harsh taskmaster or a gentle and loving father who enables us to be faithful with the gifts that he's given us. It's extremely important that we understand who he is and that he's patient, that his yoke is easy, that he enters into our work and helps us. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. He's the helper. God knows we need help, amen? See, God is never withholding his presence from us. God is never withholding his presence from you. There are barriers sometimes on our end, neglect of getting alone with him, neglect of his word, standing on his promises, not uh, uh, worshiping, lack of worship, things like that, that can, we, we start to lose our awareness of his presence. But God is never withholding his presence from you, right? That's why we made some little flyers to hand out at the farmer's market for the festival this weekend, and it says a church for the presence of Jesus. I feel that's what we are. We're a church for the presence of the Good Shepherd. We want to have an encounter with his presence in our worship. When we come here, we want to be changed every time we come and enter in because we're, we're hungry and thirsty for his presence. And we can't leave his presence without being changed. Right? So, let me make a couple comments on a bigger picture, I think, to put the parable in. A bigger, bigger picture from the whole perspective of the story of the Bible. It's so neat how all of this fits together. Um, so we were given a vocation at the very dawn of uh, creation when humankind was first created, when Adam and Eve were first created. Uh, the Bible tells us they were made in God's image. And if you were made in someone's image, you were their representative. So the statues and the temples in the days of old in the ancient Near East, those were the images of the gods, right? They represented to the people and the people brought them gifts and worship. So in the Bible story, the God of Israel does something differently, and his image is on his living, breathing creatures. And so they're image bearers, and what image bearers are meant to do are to reflect the deity, their God, accurately to the world. And so Adam and Eve were given this vocation to reflect God to the world. 
And he gave them a vocation. And he says in Genesis 1.28, he blessed them. The first thing he does is he blesses them. You know, he did this. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He blessed them. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. So he gave them a vocation to be faithful representatives of who he is and to care for the world, really to be kings and queens over the creation, his good temple that he made. You know, the Bible tells us um, in Romans chapter 8 that those who God has destined, he has destined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's a phrase of vocation. That's our vocation. That's our calling is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. If we're not becoming more and more like Jesus over the course of our life, we're not growing in our Christian walk. That's the measure of growth. Am I starting to look more like Jesus? Okay, so that's our vocation and our destiny to become conformed to the image of Christ. And Ephesians 2 tells us that before time began, God planned out the good works that he desires and expects of you. He puts it in this beautiful imagery. He's like, God, you're God's workmanship, he says. You're his piece of art. And he planned out good works for you to do, things for you to have, so that you could carry out the work that he gave you to do. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Now, here's what happens in the story, right? There's this beautiful relationship between God and, and humanity, and then sin enters the picture because of the disobedience and the rebellion, right? They go to the tree that God tells them not to. They're tricked and deceived by the father of lies. And they take from that fruit and sin ruptures the relationship. Right? And the fall, that we call it the fall, gets in the way of everything. It broke the relationship between humanity and God, between humans and humans. And the rest of the story is God set out to heal that situation. But what happened is, is that men and women became turned in on themselves. St. Augustine coined this phrase in Latin in the 4th century. Uh, he, he coined this phrase, homo incurvatus in se. And it means, it's fun to say. I won't make you say it, though. It took me a long time to practice it. But homo incurvatus in se, it means man turned inward upon himself. That's a picture of sin. Because it makes us self-centered, right? It makes us on the throne of our lives. And Luther, Martin Luther, that great reformer of old, he said this of Augustine's phrase, man turned on in himself. Now, this is going to hit you hard, so just bear with me here, but it hit me hard. But I think he's really getting at something true that we don't realize how self-centered we can become. Luther says this, our nature by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself, bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them. Or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. (laughs) You don't hear preaching like that anymore. This stuff was common back then. They were upfront and honest about our broken condition and our need for a savior in a healer. Another way to say it is this in modern language. We take, the, we take the gifts that we've been given to steward, the life and the gifts that we've been given to steward, and we use them instead for a few years of fleeting pleasure for ourselves. It is the greatest embezzlement scam of all time. 
taking something that wasn't meant to belong just to us and finding a way to channel it towards our own good. Now, it is important to discern that some things are meant for you to enjoy. I'm not anti-material goods. I'm not even anti-wealth. I am all for enjoying what God has given us. But as we said last week, we have to be cautious about what our hearts are doing as we enjoy the things that God has given us. Are we becoming turned in on ourselves or are we being conformed to the image of Christ and remaining outwardly focused towards God and towards others? God, how can I serve you with my gifts? How can I serve people today with my gifts? How can I bless people with my gifts today? It's a matter of the heart. But that is how sin influences our stewardship the good things that God gives us. Now, how, what do we do about it, right? I mean, Luther describes this condition, and it's like, oh my gosh, that's true. That's like, when I read that, I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so what do we do about it? What do we do about it? What would change us? What could change us so that we were radically transformed, that we lived a different way? Nothing the grace of God. Nothing but the grace of God. You see, grace is, when we talk about grace, what do we talk about when we talk about grace? Grace is not like a, like a substance. It's not like a substance, like, oh, I got some grace, what could I do with it? Grace is the reality of God's love in the means by which he changes our heart's affections. Grace is what wakes a person up and enables them to realize they're broken and they need Jesus. But grace is also constantly at work in the believer's life to sanctify us, to draw us deeper into the life of holiness and to be better stewards of the vocation that God has given us. And the way that grace does that, it's not, okay, if I pray three extra times this week, I'm going to be a better steward, or if I put twice the amount of money in the offering plate. I'm going to be a better steward, although I will not oppose you if you want to do that. Uh, it, but it, it is, Lord, I need your grace to change my heart. Because only God can change our wills. What's a practical way that we can receive grace in that way? It all comes back to the cross. The cross of Jesus. When he gazed at, at the bridegroom, in, in, in love, in his desperate love for you, hanging on the cross, saying to you, I'd rather do this than let go of you and be separated from you for all of eternity because I love you that much. That changes a person. When that reality really sinks in, it changes a person. When's the last time that you meditated on the cross or the, the passion narratives and the gospel of Jesus dying for you and it brought you to tears? You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the trappings of this life and the material things that we own that our hearts lose the softness in the way they respond to the cross. Meditating on this great sacrifice, you did that for me? Like, God, you did that for me? You should have let me die in that car accident when I was 18. That's what I deserve. Because I spent my life spitting in your face. But instead... God in his great love, even though we were dead, 
in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Amen. That's who God is. And Jesus isn't telling these parables to hammer you down and to make you feel defeated and condemned. But he is reminding his people of the urgency of living radical lives for the kingdom. Friends, what I see and what I notice in my own observations, which of course are very limited, but this pandemic, and I don't, I don't in any way want to be political about this, but what I see is that the enemy, whatever it is, whatever its cause, origin, the enemy has used it to immobilize the church very effectively. There was a huge research study, and I've mentioned this before. A third of Christians in the U.S. have stopped attending church. They don't even watch online. There's a radical shaking of the church of Jesus Christ happening right now. And I do believe, I do believe that we are moving into, if not already in the season, of the harvest. The greatest harvest of souls into the kingdom of God that the world has ever seen. And Jesus wants us to live deeply into that reality because we only get one chance. As we read in that Psalm 90 earlier, our days are maybe 70 years, maybe 80. And then the psalmist, some say that Moses wrote that psalm and he said, So teach us to number our days that we may live with wisdom, that we may rightly steward everything that you have given us. I want to stand before the king. And as he reviews my life with me, I know there will be things that he'll point out that grieved him. But I want him to be able to say, you threw yourself in to be a part of the harvest. You bore the message on your lips with both truth and grace. You served your enemies with love. You blessed them. You told your neighbors who were perishing about me. I want to be able to stand before him and have him say, well done. You used your time and your presence to bless others. Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. And that will be the response and the praise on his lips to all who truly belong to him. Because if we truly belong to him, the fruit of our lives will be stewardship. God is a God who calls us into partnership. He's not off on a distant cloud, watching us like a policeman, making sure we do our chores. He's entered into life with us by His Holy Spirit and come to dwell in us, to walk with us. He is a... Beloved, we have unbridled access to the unlimited source of life and joy. And so no matter where you are right now in your life, if you say, I have been a bad steward, and maybe some of us need to recognize that about some areas of our life. This has hit me hard this week. But God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. That the reason that we hear that voice that says, wake up, there's some things that you are not doing that you are called to do, is a voice of love. 
It's a voice that's calling us into our true identity as sons and daughters who are commissioned to make other sons and daughters. That's what it means to be a disciple. So whether it's your presence that other people are in need of, perhaps your family, your friends, your neighbor, whether it's your money, your time, or your spiritual gifts, which, by the way, Paul commands us to eagerly pursue. Whatever it is, he's given you a bag of gold, a talent, a treasure of great worth, not only to enjoy for yourself, but to invest in other people for the sake of his kingdom, so that when you meet him face to face, the joy of his presence emanating from him, he will embrace you. And you'll be able to say, Lord, it's only by your grace that I'm saved and was able to steward a few of the things that you gave me. Amen. God is good, isn't he? He's gracious. He is good all the time. Amen. But let me say this just in closing. One thing that I, that I, that I see with the pandemic is so many have, and I, and I really am going to try to word this carefully, have um, fallen away from worship. Um, and the question that I would have is I, as I see so many people not worshiping, anymore, and I realize some people don't come to church because they genuinely are in an at-risk, have, have issues, health issues and things like that, and are just really trying to play it safe but are worshiping God in their homes. Amen. That's great. You do what you can. But if you're if church was the first thing to go, but you're going to restaurants and other entertainment venues and things like that, but church, the coronavirus isn't more effective in church than it is at a restaurant. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be political, but I'm just saying that this is something that we need to search our hearts over. If, if church, if gathering together with the saints is the first thing to go off your list, it says something about your priorities. And that's not a rebuke. It's just a, a word of searching and discernment in our hearts. And that goes not even in times of pandemic and viruses and things like that, but if gathering with the saints, if running after God with other people, when your schedule gets really busy, is the first thing to go. Gosh, that's not good. I'm not just saying this because I want you to be better church attenders. I mean, that's a given. But we need each other. The church is essential. It's essential. We need to gather. We need to sit under the word together. We need to encourage each other. The early Christians, when there were plagues, they stayed. They were the stupid, foolish people who stayed with the sick and tended to them while everybody else fled. Now, I'm not saying that if you haven't been come to church, you're fleeing your duty or anything like that. I'm just saying... During this time, it's a time to do some heart searching and asking, how has this pandemic, in one way or the other, immobilized me? Because we right now, the church, and the Lord needs his church, and the Lord wants his church to rise up and to stay active. And it may take a great amount of creativity and imagination, but keep your heart engaged in the things of the kingdom. Keep your heart engaged in the things of the kingdom. Ask the Lord, how can I be serving right now, even if I'm quarantined, even if whatever. 
because the temptation will be to just be on the couch with the clicker, say, well, the virus is out there, so I can't really do anything. I love it. We have an imagination and creativity that God has given us to serve in his kingdom, and we need to exercise those uh, creative ways. So let's pray and just ask God to give us wisdom during this time. It's difficult, and we're all at in different places with all of this, but let's just ask God to enable us to show us our calling. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to speak words to us of grace and comfort and consolation and healing. And you also sent him to speak words that would keep your church awake, that would keep your bride alert and on the watch because you say over and over, we know neither the day nor the hour when you return. And when you return, Lord, we want to be found as faithful servants, faithful stewards, because God, you have been so good to us. You have given us everything. You have given us life and breath in all of our possessions, in our families, in our church. You've given us everything. You looked upon us. And as a good father takes joy in giving good gifts to his children, you poured out grace upon us in so many ways. Lord, help us to respond to that grace by letting our affections be changed. Let grace work deep. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has places in their heart where your grace hasn't yet touched. Where There's an image of you as heavy-handed or aloof or mean or demanding. Things that your word is so clear are not your nature. Lord, I pray for a revelation by your Holy Spirit to all of us of the goodness and loving kindness of the patience and compassion that you have towards us. That you don't, you are not quick to anger. That you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, help us to step into that place where we walk so full of your spirit, constantly refreshed by your word, that we are eager and excited to serve the world and to proclaim the gospel with the things that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.